0: So D. A. Carson, who got his Ph.D. at Cambridge and is a much much respected by many people, including myself, including me, um, smart guy, loves the Lord. He calls verses 18 through 22 the, the bit that closes this passage out that Chase just read uh, one of the hardest bits of the New Testament to understand. So that's so that's that. If so, you're in good company. If we read this and you were just kind of like, what? Uh, Karen Jobes, a commentator that I quoted a lot last week, first-rate scholar, loves Jesus. She said even among today's interpreters. This passage has the reputation for being perhaps the most difficult in the New Testament. The most difficult in the New Testament. Martin Luther, we quoted, actually kind of misquoted earlier. Sorry, there's a bit of a typo in, in that text. That was like, you don't want to get the creeds wrong. We did. There's some, some bit about Jesus, actually, that was a little bit of a typo, so that wasn't good. But uh, I'll, take up, I'll take that up with Luther in heaven. You misquoted me, sir. I did. I'm sorry. Um, and n- nor was it in German. It was a translation. But he said, try to not misquote him here, he said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant, which I can say yes and amen to that. I don't know what anyone does. Um, Its obscurity owes not so much the complexity of Peter's thought as to our ignorance of his context. Um, A context full of images and traditions alien to modern culture. That's, That's Karen Jobes quoting some other scholars. But I love a challenge, I don't know about you, and this is God's word, most importantly. So that's part of the blessing of expositional preaching, which we, we, we preach topically and thematically some. Um, we'll do some hard sayings of Jesus probably next year, if not the year after that, and we'll do some some heaven and hell and some other things, um, and probably some tough questions, like some of the biggest questions that the culture's asking Christianity next, next year. But we oft, we major on preaching through books, and so when you're doing that kind of thing, one of the blessings and the hard parts of it is when you come up a against a scripture like this, that's tough, you can't just jump over it. got to deal with it, which is good, it's here for a reason. So let' let's dig in together. So the first point that I want to bring before us here that Peter that Peter talks about, and this is, really, this is really the point of the book, is suffer well. So my point one is, is to suffer well. And that's what really what Peter's talking about in the beginning, really in this, in this entire book, in, in this middle of the book and in the beginning of this passage that Chase read, starting in verse eight. Um, that that Christians have been called to suffer well because God has appointed us to suffer and he's gone before us and he suffered. So we have a great hope and he's working on us as we suffer. So suffering doesn't just happen to us. God sovereignly ordains it. He calls us to suffer. We see that in verse nine. He calls us to suffer in this way, not suffer through our sin, which we do, but when we're doing good and we're we're living for Christ and we're suffering in in a society that's hostile to us. Peter's, as if you've been here for any amount of time, you know that Peter's first century early 60s context was way more hostile to christianity than ours is but ours is becoming increasingly hostile the west is becoming increasingly hostile we don't know that it's going to continue on that trend the history of the west and of america certainly is a history of revivals and so that's what we're praying for for personal and corporate revival and the revival of the church constantly because the church always tends to cool and tends to fall away from the lord so we need continual revival but um suffering makes us more like his son jesus it draw and it, there's a sweetness of fellowship with the Lord when we suffer in his name. Um, it draws people to his son in faith when they are, uh, and they're saved. Um, so, but Peter says, be encouraged. Not only did Christ go before you and not only is Christ in you, but God sees you. And verse 12 reminds us as he's quoting from the Old Testament from a Psalm, that he, see, that he hears us. He sees us and he hears us as we suffer. He sees everything. So in verse 13, um, that, Peter says, Um, Let me find the verse here. Peter says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? And that just brings up the question to me, and I want to pass it on to you all. Are we, am I a zealot for good? Am I, do I do good with zeal? Or am I just, or is more of my life characterized by just trying not to do bad? So often, I think, by way of confession, my life is characterized more by trying not to do bad stuff than by a zeal for doing good and for pursuing the Lord and being salt and light and honoring him in my heart. Verse 14, do I suffer because of righteousness or do I suffer because I'm failing to do what's right, being irresponsible, not keeping my word, being selfish, rude, disobedient, perverse, debauched, and so on and on we could go. Um, And so often I do suffer because of my sin and not because of the good that I'm doing and the way I'm following Christ. So it's a very convicting opening here by Peter. Um, But how do we do all this how do we speak and act in this way? Um, not just when things are more or less going our way, but when we're being cursed, persecuted, snubbed, and truly wronged, when we're suffering, when we're in pain. Um, it, may, it may help us as we ask these questions because we come up against this sort of living, suffering for doing good and by living like Christ and with, and with Christ in us. And, that, and I think that we all, if we're honest, feel that we fall short. And I think there's a certain... We should. Well, we should, in part. But it may help as we think about who is writing this. Um, you know, verses 8 and 9, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but rather bless, bless those who curse you. We think about Peter and how different he is here from the Peter of the Gospels. The Peter of the Gospels is hes assertive, he's brash, he's impulsive, he's proud, he's rude. Um, when, when Jesus basically said, Hey, my mission is to, what did Peter do? Yeah, he, he rebuked his maker. He had the brass to rebuke, rebuke Jesus when Jesus said, Hey, my mission. And therefore basically your mission is to suffer. And, uh, he, and then in the garden, when, uh, things really got hot right before Jesus, as he was being arrested and about to set in motion, Going to the cross, the, the reason that he came, Peter, what did Peter do? Right? He, yeah, he grabbed a sword, maybe brought a sword along the way from the, uh, from the upper room after the, that supper, that communion supper they had together. He grabbed his sword and he cut off the, uh, the servant of the high priest, Malchus. We know his name because Malchus probably became a Christian. He probably became a Christ follower and possibly a leader in the church. Um, but he cut off Malchus's ear when the Roman Jewish brute squad came to arrest Jesus. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, 30 years on, Peter's saying, don't repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. And we have to ask ourselves, what made the change? What made the change is that Peter got to the end of himself. He saw that he had denied Jesus, he had completely let Jesus down, and Jesus still hung on a cross gladly for Peter. Not because of Peter's behavior, but because Peter and all of us need a savior. He saw Jesus love him unto death, um... And then, and then that same Jesus rose from the dead and came and met with Peter and didn't rub it in Peter's face but talked through that with Peter and he had that do you love me conversation in John 21 and he blessed Peter and he charged Peter and then he took up residence in Peter a few weeks later at Pentecost and he filled Peter with his spirit and Peter became a lion. Um, he became a lion. And so... And that is available to, and that is, that is for every single person on planet earth. And that is, that is what happens to every believer. We see Christ hanging on the cross for us as sinners who have betrayed him, who have denied him. And then he, when we trust in him and believe on him, he comes and he fills us with his spirit. And that's the only way that we can live this way, right? Um, verse 9, return cursing with blessing. How? Again, with Peter. We, with Peter, we cursed Christ. He became, Jesus became our curse even as we cursed him. And in becoming our curse, in becoming a curse for us, Jesus blessed us. He spoke blessing over us, and he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And that, that was for us. That was for us. Um, with this Christ for us, but also in us, and looking to his example in life and death, only then will we have the power to return cursing with blessing, not by muscling it up, trying to gin it up, but looking to the one who loved us all the way to death. Um, And we pray the prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. So maybe right now, just right as I'm preaching, you have someone that you, it's just too hard for you to forgive. They've truly wronged you. Look to Christ and ask him for the help to to forgive those because you've been forgiven of something far, far worse by Jesus Christ himself. Um, Verse nine again, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. The word obtain also means inherit. It means inherit. In fact, this is the word's primary definition to inherit. The King James Version and another translation and others translate it this way. Um, we don't deserve blessing. We've, we haven't earned it. We don't return cursing with blessing to be accepted as Jesus' kids. We don't start to act like him to be accepted by him, to earn his favor. We're accepted because of Jesus, because of God, the Father's only kid. Right? We, an inheritance is something you don't work for. And inheritance is something that you're given by birth. The only way you can we can begin to live like this is through the new birth by trusting in Jesus Christ. Um, therefore, we are able to bless when cursed, not perfectly. Our new being leads to new actions. Our actions and words that we see in verse ten show who we belong to. Um, as we as we wrap this point and move into point two, um, the Peter here in verses ten through twelve is quoting from, like I said, an Old Testament. And he's quoting from psalm 34 and he doesn't quote this part but if you go to the end of psalm 34 how does psalm 34 end let me read it to you psalm 34 ends in verses 19 through 22 this way it says many of the afflictions of the righteous but the lord delivers him out of them all he keeps all his bones not one of them is broken affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned the lord redeems the life of his servants none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned so this is speaking of Christ, and his bone, not a single bone on his body on the cross was broken, and that bones often were broken to speed up the process of dying, and that needed to happen with Christ. But when they got to him to sledgehammer his shins, to break his bones so he couldn't push himself up anymore, his bones, he was already dead, so they didn't need to break his bones. And this is the prophecy that, that was fulfilled. But um, in an even greater sense... Um, Well, I'll mention mention this at communion. I'll mention this at communion. But Christ also was the Passover lamb, not a bone of the Passover lamb was broken. But the point I wanna make here is that Christ fulfills this entire, he fills this particular part of the psalm and he fulfills this entire psalm. He's the one who returned, he's cursed by us and he returns with blessing. He's the one whose bone wasn't broken. And so his death counts for you when you look to him by faith, but his life also, his righteous life also counts for you is pushed into your account when you trust in him. His death takes away our sin, but also his righteous life counts for you. Um, And he's the one that brings us, as Peter says, to God. Um, He died in our place, but he also lived in our place. Um, So only as he lives in us, as his righteousness becomes ours by faith, can we begin to embody all these commands that Peter is enjoining us to obey. Um, It's Christ-fulfilling the scriptures for us it's christ fulfilling the righteousness god requires for us it's christ becoming the sin sacrifice that, that we ought to have offered but that he did in our place so that's that's point one um point two let's move along set apart christ as holy getting into verses 14 and 15 um so there's more here in verse 14 peter commands the uh these christians here in early 60s roman empire in the he's writing in uh, asia minor minor current day turkey and through them He's commanding us to have no fear of those who persecute us, not even to let them trouble us. But, and, and again, we ought to go, what, how is this possible? How is it possible to, uh, in the earlier part of the passage, to return cursing with blessing? And now, how is it possible not to be, when we're being persecuted and snubbed um, and hated and tormented and laughed at, how is it possible not to fear persecution? Uh, how is it really possible don't fear those who persecute you don't fear being snubbed or much or much worse and and much worse happened to a lot of these early christians and it's happening around the world don't fear the opinion of man don't fear man at all how 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 does this happen how not the key i think is in the very next line the start of verse 15 peter says but in so he says don't fear man don't fear when you're persecuted but what but in your hearts honor christ the lord is holy and i think this is the hinge of the entire passage in your hearts honor christ the lord is holy literally the text reads in your heart sanctify christ the lord okay treat him as holy set in the word holy means set apart so literally he's saying in your heart set apart christ is lord give christ the position that he alone deserves give him the first position in the core the most important part of who you are that nothing else deserves he deserves that. He made you for him to sit in that place in your heart, to have the chief of your affections, the chief of your will, the chief of your of your mind, of your thoughts. And um, so he's so Peter's telling us again to underline it, to allow to give Jesus Christ, to allow him to occupy a place in our hearts that no one else and nothing else does. And, and you know, this is what worship is. This is full-throated, full-hearted worship. This is affection. That's what Peter's talking about here. Um, he's not talking about some sort of perfunctory religion. He's talking about true life worship with the core of who we are and not giving that first place to anything else in the universe. No other person, no job, no other thing. Um, but the wording tells us something else. Peter's taking a line here from the Old Testament. He, the New Testament authors are constantly quoting from the Old Testament. So that's where um, some of the side references, the margin, the margin references in your Bible really come in handy. What, what, what Old Testament um, passage is this New Testament author pulling from? Well, here, Peter's quoting from Isaiah 8, verses 12 and 13. Let me read those for you. This is Isaiah 8, written 700 years before Jesus was born. It reads, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So what's Peter doing? He's taking He's taking an Old Testament passage where we, where the Jews, God's people, are being commanded to fear God alone and to give him, I mean, he's taking this passage straight from Isaiah, give him a place in your heart that is for no one and nothing else, because anything less than that is idolatry, and anything less than that means that we won't work as God made us to work. It's like putting sugar or milk in a gas tank. The car is made for gas, or maybe now it's made for electricity or diesel, but it's not made for sugar or milk yet. We'll leave that to Willy Wonka. Um, but what is Peter doing? He's, he's taking uh, Jesus Christ and he's inserting that. He's inserting Jesus Christ himself into that passage that's talking about giving the Lord of all creation, the self-existent and one God and the only God. There is no other God. That place in our hearts, he's saying that's Jesus he's saying that that's Jesus Christ. He's applying it to Jesus. So when we, okay, let me unpack, let me apply this. When we realize that the one self-existent, all-powerful God of creation is Jesus, fully. I was reading in my quiet time this morning in Colossians, I think it was two, the fullness of divinity is in him. He is fully God and became fully man for us to bring us to God. As Peter says, This self-existent one, this one God and creator of all things who made each of us, died for us. He became, willingly became a curse on a cross and was pinned there like an insect. Choosing to take the wrath of God for our sins that we deserve. Choosing to take our cursing and to give us blessing back. Choosing, again, to take all that separates us from God so he could bring us to God. Choosing to give us his righteous life and record. Um, so when we realize that he rose, he did this for us and he rose from the dead and reigns now and will return as we're going to get to in point three. And as Peter finishes in that weird Noah passage, um, he, and that he will return to be with us and to make all things new, we will not fear man or persecution or suffering, or it will lessen that fear in us will truly lessen as we, as we let the penny drop more and more and more, as we contemplate with our minds and our hearts and everything that we are, as we remind each other throughout the days and the weeks and the years that God Almighty hung on a cross to take the curse that I have earned and to bless me. And that he's alive, he rose from the dead, defeating death and hell and showing that his payment for you was accepted by the Father. He didn't pay for himself on the cross, he didn't have to. His record was clean, he paid for you. And the resurrection is empirical proof that the Father said, accepted for anyone who looks to Jesus. He's reigning At the right hand of power, at the nerve center of the universe, and the next event in history is his return in power. To bring to himself, and that's how Peter finishes, to bring to himself all who are his and to get rid of sin and evil and to recreate all things as he's doing even now. But he's going to finish that work. Um, So when we realize this, when we think about this, when we contemplate this, when we worship the Lord as having done this for us and with us and in us now and reigning and soon to return, it pushes out that greater fear there's an expulsive power to it. It pushes out. We will fear. Just as we will, fear is like the, ba- the backside of worship. We will fear. We will fear something. Fear of man will paralyze us. It will cause us to, to, run, to do anything for the approval of the thing we fear. F- fear of God pushes out lesser fears. And it allows us to, to have an answer, but to, to do so in gentleness, to to bless when we're cursed. There's nothing else that will cause this to happen. So, so this, this sort of adoration, this full-throated, full-hearted adoration of the one, the only one, the self-existent one who hung on a cross for us gladly with a smile on his face, as Keller likes to say, this is more than mental assent. This is giving him first place in the core of our being. Don Carson, uh, he said, the praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. The praising heart is immune to the fear of other people. Jesus he said, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body. Think about, uh, think about a greater fear of pushing out a lesser fear. Okay, so don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. It's a pretty big thing to be afraid of. Like, there's nothing in life we could be more afraid of. Being snubbed or losing my job, that's scary, but that's nothing compared to actually being killed for my faith. He says, don't fear, Jesus says, don't fear those who can just kill the body. What's worth, Jesus? Rather, he says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And if I can say it with trembling, there is a sense in which Jesus was destroyed as a man, and yet he actually destroyed death through his, through his and so he wasn't destroyed. But he took death and sin and hell into himself and pulverized them uh, on that cross. Um, so, so great is his love for us. Um, so what is more, though, there's this related bit about sharing our faith, and it flows right out of this injunction to honor Christ the Lord as holy, to give him first place a place that nothing else has in our lives. Next line, right after that, is always, it's this fridge magnet verse. I call it a fridge magnet verse. I'll explain myself in a second. The next line is always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So all they can say, only bad things they can say are good things about you. Ways in which you're Imitating the Lord, praising the Lord, sharing your faith like crazy, right? Can you imagine if we live like that? Lord, would you, would you make it so? Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So, again, I call this a fridge magnet verse. Why? Because you've heard the phrase, but, like, it's, it's a ver- one of those great verses that you can, we, we take out of context, which is totally fine. You can't put an entire book of 1 Peter on a fridge. But it's a great verse about sharing your faith. Doing it fearlessly but doing it with gentleness and respect, but always having, doing it reasonably, always having um, a re, re, good reasons ready to, to explain why we, why we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But um, a lot of times because of that, we, we memorize the verse, but we kind of think about it in isolation. But it's here in 1 Peter. And so um, we should always be prepared to defend the faith reasonably and respectfully. So to put it in a nutshell, defend the faith, but not defensively. But notice the context. It flows out of Peter, and I don't think I realized this until this week. It flows out of Peter telling us that Jesus should occupy a place in our hearts that nothing else does. So what's, what's the point? Let me apply this in two ways. One, first point, fear of God, as I've said, um, fear of God displaces fear of man and empowers our witness. What keeps me let, me, let me put it this way, I haven't, I don't think said this yet. What keeps me so often, if I'm honest, from sharing the best thing in the universe God died, there is no way to be reconciled to God except for this one way, Jesus. He's made a wide open way for anyone, regardless of your background, regardless of your sin, to come straight to him. It's the best news in the world. There's nothing you can do other than to come to him and trust in him. He's done everything. But um, honestly, what keeps me from sharing often isn't that I don't know enough. I think we tell ourselves, like, I'm just going to take one more class. I'm just going to get one more degree. I'm just going to study a little more. Like we never. But really, underneath that, the reason that I don't share is because I'm afraid. I'm afraid that it's going to hurt our friendship. I'm afraid that they're going to hate me. I'm afraid of the persecution in whatever soft or hard way I'm going to experience. It's fear of man. I'm afraid people won't like me when I share. So I'm, I'm more concerned about them liking me, so really that's about me, than I am about them having a chance to be saved from hell. I mean, I say out loud it's embarrassing, but that's, that's what's happening. Fear, but fear in the wrong place. But think of Peter. Think of Peter writing this. He was afraid to identify with Jesus under threat. He collapsed. Hey, I think you're with Jesus. No, no, no. And he did it three times, and by the final time, he was shouting expletives. I don't know him. But then after he's filled with the spirit, he's filled with the risen Christ who was gladly spiked to a tree and became a curse and died for Peter and for you and for me. Peter becomes a lion after he's confronted with that invincible love and filled with Jesus himself by his spirit. So 30 years later, he says, in effect, don't let them intimidate you. Stand up and give them cogent reasons for your trust in Christ, but do so gently. Don't react. Love them because he first loved you. Christ in us, occupying that place that nothing else should, changes us. It changed, he changed Peter, and, and he's changing us, and this is an offering. He can change you. Nothing else can. But secondly, and related to this, faith defense apologetics is not just a head trip. It's not just an argument to win. It's personal. It comes out of a relationship that we have Remember, put Christ in that place in the core of who you are that nothing else occupies. That's devotional language. Um, It's the defining relationship of our lives, or ought to be. um, it, It saves us. He saves us. It's the relationship of our greatest affection. So our faith defense isn't just advocacy. It's not just reasons to believe. It's actually witness. It's actually telling people, come meet the one who is more beautiful than any other being or thing on earth. And who loves you with an invincible love and died on a Roman cross and took the wrath of God to show it. Oh, and he's alive and he's in me. And let me tell you about this wonderful, let me tell you about this wonderful Savior. Alexander McLaren, uh, a Scottish preacher in the 19th century, looking out over his congregation one day, he was shocked to see a well-known skeptic in the audience. Maybe I may have one of you out there, which is fine. The man told McLaren that he had decided to become a Christian. He probably said, I've decided to become a Christian. Um, I wish I could preach the entire sermon in this accent, but I'm not going to. Um, the preacher asked which message had brought the man to that decision. And the former skeptic replied, and Mac- McLaren was a famous, he was, he, was a, he was a fire-breathing, in a good way, Christian preacher. Um, so he said, which message of mine brought you to that decision? And the former skeptic replied, your sermons, sir, were helpful, but they were not finally what persuaded me to become a Christian. A few weeks ago, as I was leaving church, I noticed an elderly lady with a radiant face. Because she was making her way with difficulty along the icy street, there's plenty of that in Scotland, I offered to help her. As we walked along together, she looked up uh, at me and said, I wonder if you know my Savior, Jesus Christ. He is everything in the world to me. I want you to love him too. He said, those few words touched my heart, and when I got home, I knelt down and received the Savior. How wonderful is that? So by the way, the word gentleness means not being overly impressed with a sense of one's self-importance. That's straight from a high-powered Greek Greek dictionary. Not being overly impressed with a sense of one's own self-importance. In other words, humble. So C.S. Lewis described humility not as thinking little of yourself, but as thinking of yourself little. You just don't think of yourself that much because you're so focused on the Lord and other people. And um, so humble, but how do we get there? We get there knowing that Jesus died for me, a sinner who hated him, and is the reason he was crucified, right? Dwelling on that. In classical Greek literature, this word gentleness, it's prautes, if you're interested, is explicitly distinguished from anger and cruelty. In extra-biblical, ancient, classical Greek literature, Um, anger and cruelty, it's the opposite of those things, as it were. Um, things so sad, sadly so often involved in Christian faith defense. I can be angry. I can be even cruel as I'm defending the loving Savior, right, as I'm, if I, as I'm ex- trying to explain my faith. I can feel defensive and backed into a corner, right, when I'm trying to defend my faith. Because the word here really is defense. So it's, it's hey, when, when, when there's a hostility around you, have an answer. You can be back on your heels and you can, rah, you know, it's, it's hard not to. Um, but we got to remember we're arguing for a sun-centered universe, excuse me, solar system. Uh, we're arguing for a round, a spherical, not a, not a flat earth, okay? We're arguing for, for the real Lord and Savior that is the only Savior. Uh, and we're offering to give life to people. Um, a, a theological dictionary says that we should note finally that when the New, New Testament advocates gentleness, it does not imply an attitude dependent solely on the human will. It's a sign of salvation, calling an election. I might call it fruit. True gentleness is the fruit, okay, here they say it, of the Holy Spirit. It's not an aspect of human temperament. Rather, it comes about when a person is linked with Christ and is conformed to his image. So it's, an, it's something that is Jesus in us, and it's an indication of his life in you. And I just want to say, if there's no trace of that in you, you might want to take some moments this morning to cast yourself on Christ and say, I, I, want, I need you, gentle, reasonable, loving, and all-powerful Savior, to save me, and to come and to live in me. D.A. Carson, again, I'm all over D.A. Carson this morning. He shares a story about a friend of his who's a Christian and a doctor in a Muslim country. And um, th- this woman comes to him, and her son had really gashed open his leg big time, and in his calf, actually. And um, he, was, he sutured it up, of course, and cleaned it up, and he was reminding her of the importance of keeping the wound clean. And then she volunteered in the midst of this, of this advice as he's tending to her son, Sometimes I wish someone would clean my dirty heart. Now, Carson writes this. He says, now, what would you say? Well, of course, your problem, ma'am, is that you're a Muslim. We Christians have an atonement theory that explains what to do with this dirt. But while you believe in the sovereignty of God, you don't really have a kind of, a kind of way of dealing with this dirt adequately, do you? I'm not surprised you feel this way. You've won the argument, he says, and you've just lost the entire war. If you, if you respond that way. But He said instead what the doctor did is he gave his personal testimony in a spirit of humility and brokenness. And he said, you know what? I know exactly what you mean. I had the dirtiest of hearts, and I was ashamed about it. And one day I met a man who has had the power and has the power to clean me. And it's actually why he came, and he's done it. And he came to do it to anyone who looks to him. Can I tell you about him? And of course... She was glad to hear. So what he did is he gave reasons for his personal, devoted faith in Christ with gentleness and respect. And then Peter puts this beautifully in verse 18. And we really only have uh, about five minutes, which is fine, to finish up the hardest text in the New Testament. So that's good. I really wasn't planning on spending a long time on it any, anyway, so it's okay. But I do wanna, we can't skip it right? as much as I want to. It's God's word and it's good. Um, but Peter puts this beautifully, and then we'll get to point three, um, the Noah bit. In verse 18, he says, for Christ also suffered once. So, hey, suffer well. Why? Because Christ also suffered. God of the universe gladly and willingly suffered. I don't I don't willingly suffer. Jesus did. He suffered once for sins, one time, right? He's talking about the cross. He completely purchased our salvation and made a wide open interest for us to God. So he says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's him, for the unrighteous. That's every person on planet earth why this beautiful amazing phrase that he might bring us to god that idea of if you know if you if there's this person that is impossible to reach and you meet and there are stories that abound that preachers have used many times before throughout the centuries of you meet this person's son and there's a story about uh one of the older like a Calvin Coolidge era president that um some his son met up with someone and found out that this guy was trying to get help and just said, they were in D.C. together, early part of the 20th century. And he said, uh, well, why don't you just come with me? And he walked f- straight through into the White House and straight through all these high-powered meetings, all these doors, and he walked right into, I think it was the Oval Office, where his dad, the president of the United States, was having a meeting with this cabinet. And he was, the, he was the president's son, so he had full access. And he just brought him right to the president, and the problem got taken care of. And that's what Jesus does with us. When we're with Jesus, when we look to Jesus, and we know that he has full access to the Father and he alone, he says, I've come to say, come with me. I want to bring you to my Father. I want to bring you to my Father. Um, and so he does. But there, So there's more. This last tricky bit. Um, Peter and adv- advances and completes his argument, but it gets, boy, it gets weird. Um, point three. Okay, he has brought us to God and reigns over all. Now, very briefly, like a stone skipping across water, let's conclude with this point. He has brought us to God and reigns over all. That's really Peter's main point in this strange uh, section here. Um, so first of all, let's be clear, and we're looking at verse 18 through 22. What is this talking about? Well, it's talking about death and resurrection. That's in verse 18. It's talking about death and resurrection, verse 18. And then in verse 19, it's tricky. You don't see it as much. But in verse 19... It's talking about ascension. So death, resurrection, and the ascension to the right hand of power of Jesus Christ. And that's where he says, okay, being put to death, death, the cross, in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's talking about the resurrection. Verse 19, in which he went. Okay, that verb is the same verb as the last verse, verse 22. Who has gone, same verb, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. In other words, having all authority and all power. So, Sort of framing this section is Christ going up to be seated and the fact that he has been vindicated in giving his life for sinners. Now he has made a way for us to be seated with him, Ephesians 2, in power at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So what is, what is Peter talking about very clearly? Not very clearly, but let me try to make it clear. He's talking about the, the, big, the biggies that Jesus came to do for us. The death for our sins, the resurrection, all in verse 18. And then the ascension, verses 19 through 22, it's a frame, the ascension. He both went in verse 19, and then he has gone in verse 22. Made alive in the spirit there at the end of uh, verse 18 is speaking not, it's not saying that Jesus became a spirit without a body. Made alive in the spirit is simply talking about the fact that his old man, his old man, not sinful man, but his old man was crucified on the cross, and he rose a new type of human, in unable to sin, impervious to sin, and the, to the power of death. And that is where we are headed if we trust in Christ. We will, too, be bodily resurrected. But Paul talks about the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus in the same way with uh, being raised in the Spirit in First Corinthians 15. He ended an old order stained and broken by sin. He buried it. He crucified it. And with his resurrection, he began a new order, unstained and untouchable by sin, death, and evil. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, and that's what Uh, Peter is talking about here. Um, What is, okay, what is Peter not talking about? What he's not talking about in this passage is descent into hell at any time. We actually get our passage in the Apostles Creed. He descended into hell from this text, and it's a misreading of the text, Um, and that's, I'm not the first one to see this. Don't worry. This is, this is, um, this has been seen for a long time, but we do believe that Jesus endured hell for us, but that he finished that work on the cross, Um, And this is not talking about a descent because, again, if you read in verse 19, what, in which he went, that verb, it would have been a different verb, uh, the simple and clear verb for he went down. It's not the verb for go down. He doesn't use that verb. He uses the same verb as he does in verse 22 where it says he's gone into heaven. He's talking about the ascent, the, the victory and the proclamation of the victory that Christ had at the cross that was, that was uh, shown at the resurrection and where he kept, after 40 days, ascending to the right hand of power. So he's not talking about a descent into hell at any time, whether between the cross and the resurrection or after his resurrection. Again, Peter would have used a different verb in verse 19. He doesn't. When is he talking about? So what is he talking about? What is he not talking about? Now, when is he talking about um, in, in verses 19 through 22? After, he's, ta- he's not talking about between his death and resurrection, some time where he went down and preached in hell He's talking about at post-resurrection, during his ascension. What is he talking about there? His victory over sin, death, and hell. It's an announcement. What is this? It's an announcement to all humans, but also to all dark cosmic powers and to all angels of his victory and power over sin, death, and hell for us. He's overturned the old order, and he started a new order that will never end. Um, now, to whom? As we get into the rub of this, and then we close. Who, to whom? Okay, to whom is he speaking? Um, to whom is Christ speaking as he's preaching, Right? Ah, here's the rub, okay? So he's likely preaching to the demonic spirits being kept in some sort of prison since Noah's day. The ones mentioned in that really weird text in Genesis 6, verses 2 through 4, who forcibly took women as wives. Um, now, there's an, alternate, there's, an alternate, um, there's an alternate explanation of this text saying Jesus, after his resurrection, went and preached to men... Uh, he went and preached to men who were being held, who had died in Noah's day, who were, who were contra, who were against Noah and who were against the Lord and who were living evil lives and who got swept away at the flood. He went and actually, sorry, the, the, the alternate understanding is that Christ, that Jesus rather, this is the other sort of real possibility, although I don't think it's this, that Jesus in Noah's day, the pre-incarnate Christ in Noah's day was preaching, he was preaching through Noah about the way of deliverance, um, just as we as Christians with the spirit of Christ in us, are preaching about the way of deliverance, which is not an ark, but it's the ark Jesus through whom we pass through the waters of sin, death, and hell, safe in Christ, right? So, but there's a good evidence now for us to, that they, like Augustine who believed that and others didn't have, that helps us to understand that this probably was Jesus um, preaching after his resurrection, during his ascension, to the fell powers in Noah's day um, about his victory. Okay, so why? The question is why, as I wrap. Noah was well-known in Asia Minor. Remember, um, at this time Paul is writing, in the, in the mid-first century, Noah was like the, uh, he was the, he was the biblical figure that was the best known by by Christians, by Jews, and also just in the wider world. Um, so Peter's writing, in, in, he's writing this letter to churches in Turkey, but then known as Asia Minor. And so in this area, Noah was like the superstar. Uh, Karen Jobes writes this, Noah was the most prominently known biblical figure in Asia Minor, even among its Gentile population. And there are a few reasons for this. One, because of the worldwide flood. Because of the flood, uh, they knew, they had this residual understanding that, okay, Noah, um, or Gilgamesh, but Noah, they knew about Noah. Secondly, though, there was a text called First Enoch. It's a non-biblical Jewish book that Gentiles knew about, even if they'd never read. Um, and there's lots of language about in First Enoch about the things that Peter's talking about here, Okay, about these fell spirits in Noah's day. Um, and we have evidence for this. Thirdly, there are coins minted with Noah and his wife on one side and the, the emperor, the Roman emperor at the time on the other side that stretched through five emperors um, during and after this time period that we still have today. Um, that that show us how well Noah was known. They're archaeological evidence. So Peter draws, what's Peter doing? Let's wrap this. He's drawing on this widespread cultural knowledge to make his larger point about the total conquest of Christ who suffered, but who was raised not only from the dead, but to the throne of the cosmos, of the universe, and who therefore reigns as God's son at God the Father's right hand, the hand of authority and power. In other words, Jesus suffered and died, but beat sin and Satan and death and hell, and now has all authority, and so do you. And he is making all things new and we win. So suffer well, Peter's saying. And that means suffer with this invincible hope. Jesus, uh, we don't just have the victory over those who are persecuting us here. He has already announced his victory to the darkest of demons in a transtemporal cosmic way. He is now at the nerve center of the universe pulling the levers because he now has all authority. He always has that all authority as God, but now we have it in him because he represents us as men. Because he's the God man, right? And so Noah, uh, Peter is just saying, look, in Noah's day, he was building a boat for possibly over a century. I mean, he, was, he and his sons were building this boat. They didn't have things that planed wood. They didn't have power tools. You know, they didn't have any of the stuff we have now except for saws and hammers and things like that. And he, God told him, build this boat and have it be big enough to hold the whole world, basically, in this place that's completely dry. And so imagine how much he was ridiculed in a place where only he was righteous, how much, how much ridicule and, and torment and persecution he suffered, and how alone he must have felt. And indeed, eight people were saved, and that's it. And then God started over with those eight people after the flood. Think about how, what a minority, and think about Peter's congregation, and you may feel the same way, as a minority increasingly in a culture that's opposed to God. They may have felt alone. They may have felt like they were on the losing side. They were certainly being persecuted. But like Noah, Peter's saying, you will be saved by the God of creation. And those who turn from the message of deliverance, your preaching will be destroyed like those in Noah's day. But keep preaching. And now we look at the persecuted minority that the church was, and then three centuries later, and then today where there are over 2 billion Christians. And yes, we're being, the darkness is encroaching and our culture is turning away from Jesus. But actually the gospel is spreading farther and faster right now in the global South, in South America, in Africa, in Asia, in other places, in the Middle East, than it ever has in the history in the past 20 centuries. And so um, keep, know that you're on the winning side. Know that uh, Christ is with us, that he's reigning, and that his power is over men and over um, and over spirits, and, and he is king over the cosmos. Um, so whatever Whatever this Noah uh, and and preaching to spirits in prison section means, okay, I had my best crack at it with a few minutes, but let's not forget where Peter locates it, between a frame that highlights the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, Lord of all. This is the point of the Noah section. He reigns as king over a new creation. We've died to the old and are bringing about the new uh, and will inhabit it and enjoy it forever with our king. This is what baptism signifies and seals, Peter says. Christ is victorious, not only over evil men, but over evil spirits as well. And in him, we have the victory. So what's the deal with baptism? In both cases, God saves the righteous through waters of judgment. How with us? Because Christ was plunged under those waters in our place by faith. And we, have, we deserve to die outside of that ark, didn't we? But he chose to be plunged under the waters of God's holy and perfect right, wrath against our sin. He chose to be plunged under that water. And baptism, when we're baptized into Christ and we trust in him, we identify with that, saying, We die to everything but Christ. And we and, and he died for us to all that would have destroyed us. And we rise to a new life in him and are, and are unified with him, or vitally connected with him by faith in a very real way. Um, and we'll see him once again face we'll see him again face to face. We'll see him face to face one day when he returns. Um, And Peter finishes, he says, it's an appeal to God for a good conscience, verse 21, baptism is. An appeal to God on the basis, Sam Storm says, reminding us, how do we appeal to, how is baptism an appeal to God? It's an appeal to God not for my behavior, not for my lifestyle, not for the way I've lived. It's an appeal to God saying, on the basis of Jesus Christ and his life and his righteousness and his sin payment for me. And saying, I'm appealing to you, God, not on any basis of my own. But based on the one that I'm looking to, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who takes me to the Father and who alone takes me to the Father. Um, If salvation's based on my performance, I can never be sure. If it's based on Christ's work in person, his resurrection, ascension, and spirit living in me, that gives me a great assurance. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for this hard text. We thank you that, uh, you know. Peter said of, of Paul's letters that there are some things in them that are hard to understand. We say the same thing about Peter's letter. But there ought to be some things that are beyond us some a little bit in your word. And yet it is so accessible and it is infinitely accessible because of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, your own son that you sent to save us um, and to show us your heart and to show us exactly what you're like. So we bless you. We love you. We thank you um, for being for having defeated death, and that that has a cosmic significance to it, and that you bring us to God. Um, So I pray that you would occupy a place in our hearts that no one else does, that nothing else does, and that that would give us a rooted and invincible hope and a gentleness and a respect and a reasonableness as we share, as we confidently and joyfully share the hope of the gospel with, with those around us, even if they're persecuting us. We were there too one, one, at one time. So we bless you, we love you, and we thank you for dying on the cross for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So friends, I just wanted to, um, as a sort of facet of this, of this communion um, time, as we move from, from uh, preaching the word to tasting the word as we do every Sunday, I uh, I just wanted to touch on that part in Psalm 34, where it says, you keep all his bones, not one of them is broken, talking about the Messiah. And um, something that this hooks into is the uh, Christ as the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. And the thing about the Passover lamb is also not a single bone of the Passover lamb was to be broken. And so, um, but he was to be totally eaten uh, so that, And and his blood was to be put over the door of the house that the family hid in so that his blood and his being consumed actually saved unrighteous Jews, unrighteous people. And if an Egyptian had taken got up on that, the Egyptian would have been saved, too, because the blood of the of the spotless lamb would have been over his life. And he would. So the lamb was to be consumed. Whatever the family didn't eat, what was to be not just thrown in the trash, but what? Burned by fire. So don't break a single bone of the Passover lamb, but make sure it's completely consumed. Jesus fulfills that. His bones aren't broken, but he's completely consumed by the fire of God, by the wrath of God. What would have happened to us happened to him, so that he, as we hide in him by faith, becomes our safe place. You see? And so I just wanted to hold that out to you as we come and take communion. Uh, this morning, and this is for those who trust in Jesus, not in themselves, to stand before the living God. So if you do that, no matter your background, this is your table. If you, ha- if you aren't ready for that yet, we don't want to unduly pressure you. We do want you to come to Christ, but that's between you and the Lord. We want to help you. We want to pray for you. We want to walk alongside you. We want you to feel, feel part of this family, but we would ask that you respectfully that you would abstain from this table until you're ready to trust in Christ. Um, so. The sacraments are a mysterious aspect of our faith. Um, in 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 this table, we look back to what Christ has done. We also know and believe that in a in a real we have the, we in a real way we experience the together as we worship the Lord and take communion in obedience to Him, to what He told us to do. We experience this, the real spiritual, not physical, the real spiritual presence of the risen Christ through the power of his spirit, by faith, as we worship together. Christ bodily is in heaven. He will one day return, but he's with us by his spirit. And there's a special sense now in which he will strengthen us for the journey. So that's happening too now. We look back, but also we're strengthened now. But then we look ahead too, don't we, to the feast that's going to come. This is not as good as it gets. There's a wedding feast that's going to kick off the rest of history that's coming. And he's going to be at the head of the table. And we are in him are going to feast. And, and really that's what's going to characterize the rest of the new creation. No more tears, no more cancer, no more sin, no more selfishness. Um, So when you're ready, Nathaniel's going to come up and going to uh –